Well, good morning. The story is told of a concert violinist who rented an elaborate music hall and advertised that he would play a $20,000 violin, the only one of its kind in the world. He came out before a capacity crowd and played exquisitely. When he was finished, they gave him a standing ovation that just kept going on and on. He bowed, and then a la Pete Townsend, he took the violin and smashed it and stomped it to pieces and walked off the stage. The crowd stood horrified for what seemed like an eternity until the stage manager came out and said, ladies and gentlemen, just to put you at ease, that was a $20 violin. We found it at a flea market this week. He will now return and play the $20,000 violin. Well, it was already clearly established that they couldn't tell the difference, which was the whole point he was there. You see, it isn't the instrument, it's the artist. And that same point has been echoed over and over as we've reviewed the background and qualifications of Jesus' 12 disciples. None of them is qualified. None of them is ideal for the part. They are totally deficient for the things that Jesus was calling them to do. They were $20 flea market violins. But see, that's the kind of people Jesus chooses to use. Because it's not the instrument. It's the artist. He chooses impulsive, inconsistent people like Peter, whose talk is better than their walk. Quiet, unassuming people like Andrew. Hot-tempered, proud, ambitious, driven individuals like James and John. Analytical, skeptical people like Philip who are always figuring out why it can't be done. Prejudiced yet honest people like Bartholomew. Notorious sinners who are outcasts in society like Matthew. Pessimistic, moody, sarcastic, melancholy individuals like Thomas. And obscure little people like James the son of Alphaeus, unknown and unsung. And then he chooses people like the tenth disciple in the list. Simon, who was called the Zealot. In all four lists in the New Testament of the disciples, he's called the Zealot. Now, what's a Zealot? Well, there were four prominent groups within Judaism. There were the Pharisees you're probably familiar with. They were the legalists. They added to the law and tried to obey the law to please God. On the other extreme, there were the Sadducees. They were the liberals. They didn't believe in miracles, didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in spirits or angels, the spirit world. They just read the Bible and pulled the miracles all out. Then there were the Essenes, who were the mystics. They were isolationists. They got away from society and thought that would get them closer to God. And then there were the zealots. 
They were more politically oriented. They hated any foreign domination, any foreign influence. They were fanatical opponents of Roman rule in Palestine. They rebelled to the point of being terrorists, guerrillas, assassins. Josephus, the first century historian, says the zealots saw themselves as being involved in a holy war. That God was calling them to this kind of anarchy. They would be comparable today to radical Islamists. In fact, in 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, Josephus writes that the key reason was the activity of the zealots. If you've ever visited Israel, you've probably seen Masada. It was a place near the Dead Sea, a high plateau that rises out of the desert, and on top, Herod built his summer home. In 73 AD, after Jerusalem was destroyed, the zealots went to Masada, overthrew it, and took over on top of this huge plateau. When the Roman army finally came, to overtake Masada, their leader, a man by the name of Eliezer, called for a group suicide. And rather than die at the hands of the Romans or be turned over to the Romans, they killed their wives, children, and themselves, and 960 perished. So their name was appropriate, zealots. Zealous ones, full of zeal. Well, that's what Simon was. He was a political activist. He was a revolutionary. He was a terrorist. And we're not told anything else about him in the New Testament. He was apparently a radical guy. He was an all-or-nothing kind of guy. I imagine he initially followed Jesus because he thought Jesus was the leader who was going to overthrow Rome. But he found Jesus to be a greater leader with a greater cause. And so he switched allegiance. Was he a transformed man? Well, we know he got along with Matthew. Matthew would have been a polar opposite. Matthew sold out to Rome and became a tax collector for Rome. So apart from being another disciple, this is the kind of guy that Simon would have killed in a dark alley. They got along as disciples. Tradition says he preached in Syria and Mesopotamia, traveled as far as Persia where he was martyred by being sawn in two. He maintained his zealous attitude. He just switched his loyalty to the kingdom of heaven. The 11th disciple in the list is Judas, the son of James. Jerome dubbed this guy Trionius, which means the man with three names. Because in the list in Luke 6 and Acts 1, he's called Judas. In Mark 3, Mark calls him Thaddeus. And Matthew in Matthew 10 calls him in the King James, because it's in the older manuscripts, Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. 
Now, the name Judas means Jehovah leads. Thaddeus is from an Aramaic word, thad, which is the word for the female breast. So he was breast child, which probably indicates he was the youngest in his family. And Lebius is from the Hebrew word leb, which means heart. So he was heart child, close to the heart. You've heard mothers say, this is my baby, and he's 6'4", 270. This is probably the baby in the family, and he's still called baby, and so he's breast child. His father was James. We're not told which James. There are three James in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of Jesus, but since Jesus was about 30 years old at this time, and we know that James was younger than he was, it's unlikely that that James, James the brother of Jesus, or half-brother of Jesus, could have had a son old enough to be a disciple. Another James is James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the disciples, nicknamed Little James, probably because he was young, so it's unlikely that he had a son this age. And the third James is James, the son of Zebedee, James, the brother of John, big James. And of all the Jameses in the New Testament, he's the most likely one. If so, Matthew 27, 56 tells us his mother was one of those ladies who left Galilee and followed Jesus. So if so, then James' mother, his brother John, and his son would have all followed Jesus. But it's hard to make that connection with confidence because James was such a common name in New Testament times. Now, Judas is only mentioned one time in the Bible apart from the other apostles, and that's in John chapter 14. This is the occasion when Jesus said, I'm going away, but I'll come back. And it caused a lot of the disciples to speak up. Thomas spoke up in this chapter. Philip spoke up in this chapter. And if you look at chapter 14 and verse 19, Jesus says, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And then in verse 21, he says, Whoever keeps my commandments, this is the one who loves me, and I will disclose myself to him. So Jesus says, In a little while, the world's not going to see me, but you're going to see me. Because I'm going to disclose or manifest myself to you. And then look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot. Now how would you like to go through your life clarifying, I'm not that guy. (laughs) This is Judas, but not Iscariot. That's probably why he liked breast child better. He speaks up and says, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now, he asks a question. There's two possible ideas behind this question. One, he may be asking, how? Because the disciples were imagining that Jesus would set up an earthly kingdom. That's why when Jesus said he was going to die, Peter rebuked him because you can't die. You're going to set up your kingdom. That's why James and John asked for the best seats in the kingdom because they were anticipating it soon. 
That's why the disciples were always arguing about who was the greatest because they envisioned their rank in this earthly kingdom. And so he says, well, how is this going to happen? How can you set up your kingdom and sit on the throne of David and the world not know who you are? So he may be asking how. Or he may be asking why. Because he says, I'm going to disclose myself to you, but not the world. And maybe he's saying, why us? Why this group of $20 violins? Why would you choose to to reveal yourself, disclose yourself, manifest yourself to us, and not the world? And Jesus' answer in verse 23 is, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. In other words, Jesus says, God lives where he's loved. So Judas obviously lacks understanding, just like the rest of the disciples. But he, ha- he does have enough insight to ask how, and maybe he has enough humility to be asking, why us? Early church historians tell us that he preached in Arabia, Mesopotamia, Persia, and Syria, where he led King Abgar to the Lord. The king's nephew was upset about his conversion, and so he took Judas and imprisoned him and later had him killed. The symbol for Judas is a big club because the legend is that he was beaten to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the final disciple, Judas Iscariot. He had a common name. In fact, the previous disciple had that same name. As I said, the name means Jehovah leads. What a paradox because he was the antithesis of his name. His name meant Jehovah leads, but he didn't follow. And that name, thanks to him, is no longer a common name. Parents don't name their sons Judas because it is a byword for betrayal. He turned a great name, Jehovah leads, into a name that is despised in human society. His father's name, according to John 13, 2, was Simon. Iscariot was not his last name. They didn't have last names in the first century. Iscariot is an Aramaic word. It comes from the root ish, which means man. And so he was the man of Kerioth. Kerioth was the name given to a little group of villages in southern Judah, about 23 miles south of Jerusalem. Now that would make Judas the only one of the disciples that is not from Galilee. And as we said last week, Judean Jews tended to view themselves as superior to Galilean Jews. That's illustrated in John 7, 52, where 
the Pharisees try to insult Nicodemus by suggesting that he was from Galilee. So there was a natural divide socially between Judas from Judea and the other disciples from Galilee. Now, if you look at the four lists of the disciples, Judas is always listed last. And he always has a comment about his betrayal because that's his brand mark and will be for all time. He was the epitome of disaster. He is the classic example of lost opportunity, of wasted privilege. He is the most tragic figure in all of the Bible. A dark blot on the pages of history. Jesus said in John 6, 70 that he was a devil. Jesus called him in John 17, 12, the son of perdition. And if that isn't bad enough, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 24, it would have been better for him if he had not been born. You say, well, why did Judas follow Jesus? We don't have his call recorded in the Bible. We can only guess that he was attracted to Jesus. He was among that large group of disciples that followed Jesus before Jesus narrowed it down to the twelve. And there were many other false disciples, according to John chapter 6. But when they left, Judas stayed. What attracted him to Jesus? I imagine that probably like Simon, he was attracted to Jesus because he thought there was going to be an earthly kingdom. He saw Jesus' power. He anticipated the kingdom, but he saw it to be a kingdom in the now. And so he was after that kingdom, not for the kingdom's sake, And not for Jesus' sake, but for his own sake. He had his eyes on what he might gain for being in the inner circle. He had his eyes on what he might gain by being in on the ground floor of this kingdom. You see, he only saw Jesus as a means to an end. And the end was his personal gain. You say, well, if that's the kind of guy Judas was, then why did Jesus choose him? Well, the Bible tells us in John chapter 6, if you want to look there. John chapter 6, and verse 64. Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then he gets specific in verse 70. Jesus answered, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. 
Jesus knew from the beginning which one would betray him. And then look over at John chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer in the garden to the Father the night before he's crucified. And notice what he says in verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of perdition. The word perdition means lostness. It means utter, complete, irreparable lostness. And to be the son of something meant you had that very nature about you. The sons of thunder were thunderous. Judas is the son of lostness. By very nature, he is lost. You see, Jesus didn't have him and then lose him. He was never found because he was always lost. And so Jesus says, I didn't guard him. I didn't protect him. And he perished. And notice, Jesus says that the Scripture might be fulfilled. What Scripture? Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55.12 says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me that I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. And Zechariah 11.12 even sets the price at which he would be sold, 30 pieces of silver. Jesus knew that Judas would, would, would betray him, and that is the exact reason why he chose him. You say, well, if Judas was the son of perdition, it must have been pretty obvious. And the son of lostness probably stuck out like a sore thumb. No. He, he didn't have 666 tattooed on his forehead. He looked like all the other disciples. He fit in. In fact, look at John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is the night before the cross. They're having the Passover meal together. The disciples have walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And verse 21 says, When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit. And he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. One of you twelve around this table right now will betray me. And they said, It's Judas. We knew it all along. No. 
verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. They were at a loss to know who it was. In fact, Matthew 26, 22 says they responded by saying, surely not I, Lord. And then in verses 23 to 25, Peter, who had to know everything, motioned to John, who was right next to Jesus, and said, find out who it is. So John says, who is it, Lord? And Jesus says in verse 26, it's whoever I dip the morsel and give it to. And so he took a piece of bread, and this is the Passover meal, so he would have dipped it in a fruit and nut paste. And he handed it to Judas. And he said to him, what you do, do quickly. And Judas got up and went out, and the Bible says it was dark. That's symbolic. It's whoever I dip the bread in and give it to him. That's the guy. So he hands it to Judas and says, do it quickly. And he gets up and he goes out the door and you say, now it's clear. They all know it's him. Look at verse 28. I'm sorry, yeah, 28. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. Judas goes out the door after Jesus says, this is the guy, and he dips the bread and hands it to him and he goes out. And the other disciples say, I guess he's going to Schnooks. See, the point is that outwardly, Judas looked just as good as all the other disciples. They all looked the same. He didn't stand out. In fact, they elected him to be the treasurer. He was the guy with the money box. You say, well, he must have had some shady background. Well, he couldn't have been worse than Matthew. He was a tax collector. Couldn't have been worse than Simon, the assassin. Can you imagine getting through the airport with that guy? You see, they all had the same raw material. They were all $20 violins. Someone has said, The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. During the three years with Jesus, 11 disciples were being softened. Judas was being hardened. Now, what do we know about Judas's character? We'll look back at John chapter 12. This is the first time we have any record of Judas doing anything or saying anything. Jesus with his disciples are in Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha. And Mary takes a pound of costly perfume. 
And she breaks it open and she anoints the feet of Jesus and then she lets her hair down and she wipes his feet with her hair. This beautiful expression of sacrificial worship. And look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now what do we learn about Judas? He's greedy. He can't see the value in worshiping Jesus, but he can see the value of that perfume. He says it's worth 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. 300 days wages. This was more than a year's salary that that perfume cost. Now Matthew 26 tells us that all the disciples said this. So I assume Judas said it and all the other disciples went, right, we agree. But the difference with Judas was his motive. Look at verse 6. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Wow. This guy stole directly from Jesus. He had the money box that funded their food and their travel and all of those details, and he used to take money out of it. He was greedy. But on top of that, he was a hypocrite because he makes it sound like he's concerned about the poor, and he only cares about one person, and that's himself. And so Jesus says in verse 7, let her alone. She's anointing me for my burial. You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. What's Jesus saying? He's saying worship takes precedence over benevolence. It is the primary thing. What's interesting is Matthew 26, 14 tells us right after this incident, It must have been the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas because right after this incident, it says he went to the chief priest and he said, how much will you give me to betray Jesus? And they handed him 30 pieces of silver. He said, I'm getting out of here and I'm going to take something with me. Now, why did the chief priest need Judas? Well, if you read the Gospels, it tells us over and over again that they tried to take Jesus. In fact, Matthew 21, 46 says, and when they sought to seize him, they became afraid of the multitudes. So whenever they tried to capture Jesus, there were people there, and Jesus was popular with the people. And so they needed someone on the inside, someone who knew Jesus' activity, someone who knew when he would be by himself so that they could take him apart from the crowds. And Judas stepped up to be that man. I don't know if they intended him also to be a witness at the trial. 
Luke 22.6 says, He began seeking a good opportunity to betray Jesus to them apart from the multitude. So again, we see his greed. He sold Jesus for money. 30 pieces of silver. As a footnote, Exodus 21.32 says that was the price of a slave. Look again at John 13. John 13, verse 2. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Judas is sitting at the table with the other disciples, and in his heart, he's thinking about betraying Jesus. You know what happens next? Verse 4, Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, and washed the disciples' feet. Utter hypocrisy. Judas is there thinking, how can I betray Jesus? And Jesus washes his feet. And then you remember when he got to Peter. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Judas says, then give me a bath. And Jesus says this in verse 10. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You don't need a bath spiritually once you've had one. All you have to do is wash your feet because they get dirty when you walk through the world. And then he said this, and you are all clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. You're all clean, but there is one of you who hasn't had a spiritual bath. And then look finally at Matthew 26. This sobering picture of Judas Iscariot, Matthew chapter 26. Again, they're at the Passover meal, the night before the cross. And as they were eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. Surely it's not me. And then in verses 23 and 24, he says, It's the one I dip my hand with in the bowl. That's the one. And then notice verse 25. And Judas who was betraying him, said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. One of you will betray me, and they're all going, Surely it's not me. They're all grieved, thinking it might be them. Surely it's not me. And Jesus says, It's the one who dips his hand with me. That's the one. 
Judas does it, and then he says, surely it's not me. Utter hypocrisy. But if you'll notice in verse 22, the other disciples said, surely it's not I, Lord. And Judas says, surely it's not I, Rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. Judas didn't call him Lord because he wasn't his Lord. Then slide down in the chapter to verse 47. Now they're in the garden. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. John 18.3 tells us this was a Roman cohort, which would be 600 soldiers. Verse 48. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Judas said, we're going in the garden, and when we get there, here's the sign. I'll kiss him. Now, why didn't he just say, it's the one I slap? Why didn't he say, when I get there, I'll just point him out and say, grab him, that's him. Well, because Judas is a hypocrite. He wants to come in, and he comes in, and he kisses Jesus and said, How you doing, teacher? And he kisses him. And then when they grab Jesus, he can step back and say, Wow, I didn't see that coming. He's a hypocrite. Then we have the finale in chapter 27 of Matthew in verse 3. It says, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw he had, con- had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That sounds pretty good. He felt remorse. He was sorry. So he came back to the chief priests and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver and he said, I have sinned. question is, is that repentance? No. See, he didn't come to God. He came back to the chief priest. He felt sorry. He admitted his sin, but he never brought it to God. He brought it back to the chief priest. He tried to undo what he had done. He was a materialistic man, and he was trying to solve his problems materialistically rather than spiritually. In verse 4, but they said, what is this to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. They wouldn't take the money, so he just threw it into the sanctuary. And he went out and hanged himself. 
Acts 1.18 says he fell headlong and burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. See, how did he hang himself and fall? Well, I assume, because you have to get elevated to hang yourself. I've never tried it, but I'm assuming. That he went out to a precipice. And maybe there was a tree there. And he tied the rope on a branch over the precipice. And then he jumped out to hang himself. And when he hung himself, the weight of his body broke the limb. And he hung himself, but then he fell. And the Bible vividly tells us his intestines gushed out. Meanwhile, verse 6 says, the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. Now they're getting lawful. They were okay with paying it out. Now they won't take it back. So verse 7 says, They conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Now you might read right over that. But it's interesting that 500 years before this, Zechariah had written this in chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. He says, The price will be 30 pieces of silver. It will be thrown into the house of the Lord. And it will go to the potter. Now the question I want to ask this morning is what was Judas's problem? What was his problem? You say, well, he was a $20 violin. Yeah, he was a $20 violin. But Jesus specializes in $20 violins. So that wasn't his problem. All the rest of the disciples were $20 flea market violins. They had plenty of flaws. They were selfish. They were greedy. They were proud. They were hot-headed. You see, the problem with Judas and the tragedy of Judas was lost opportunity. He spent three years walking with God incarnate. And he never connected. He never knew who Jesus was. He never surrendered. He never responded to his love. And when it came right down to it, he sold Jesus. He chose to gain the world, and he lost his soul. That's still happening today. I would suggest that's happening in this room this morning. Let me share a poem with you. It may not be for silver. It may not be for gold, but yet by tens of thousands the prince of life is sold. Sold for a godless friendship, sold for a selfish aim, 
sold for a fleeting trifle, sold for an empty name, sold in the mart of science, sold in the seat of power, sold at the shrine of fortune, sold in pleasure's hour. Sold for your awful bargain, none but God's eye can see. Ponder, my soul, the question, how shall he be sold by me? Acts one twenty five sums up Judas's life. It says he turned aside and went to his own place. He turned aside and went right where he belonged. Still as of old, man by himself is priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. Well, that concludes our look at the qualifications of the 12 disciples. And as I said at the beginning, Jesus didn't have a whole lot to work with. He chose $20 violins from the flea market. And yet he did monumental things through these men. Through these very men, he turned the first century world upside down. Which just confirms the principle. It's not the instrument. It's the artist. So let's be honest this morning. Each one of us, at best, is a $20 violin. But the master, the artist, wants to make beautiful music through our lives. And the question is, Am I going to put myself in his hands? Am I going to follow him? We're going to take communion together, and as we do, I would challenge you along with myself to make a fresh commitment to say, Lord, here I am, not qualified. I don't have the ability to do anything for your kingdom. I'm a cheap, beat-up violin. And as I look at Judas, I've got a lot of those same characteristics. But I'm going to say with the disciples in John 6, Lord, I'm not running away because where could I go? because you have the words of eternal life. And I'm going to give myself to you. Let's do that collectively today and individually. As we take communion together, let's pray. Father, thank you.
for the bread and the cup that reminds us of why Jesus came. He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. He came to humble himself and die on the cross in our place so that he could reign in our lives. Thank you that the price you paid, Lord Jesus, was not 30 pieces of silver. It was your all. It was everything. It was your life. And so, Lord, it only makes sense that you would want all of us surrendered to you because you deserve it. You're worthy of it. Make us like Mary today who gets down at your feet and pours out everything. Even takes our hair, which the Bible says is a woman's glory, and we wipe your feet. Because we want to decrease. We want to decrease so that you might increase. Lord, as we take the bread and the cup, stir our hearts today to be completely surrendered to you for your glory. In Jesus' name.